Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Episode 60, Phoebe. Episode 60. It's a diamond episode. <laughs> I suppose it is, yeah. How are you this week? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. And the family are all recovered, are they? We're all recovered. <laughs> we're all back to normal. So Good. Yeah. good. Very hot, though. Very, very warm up here in East Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, it's just warm everywhere at the moment, but I suspect by the time this episode goes out, we'll be back It'll be raining to, uh, again. Yeah, normal chilly yeah. summer days. <laughs> I hope so, because it is way too hot to be wearing a baby in a sling in this yeah, sort of true. weather. So. Yes. Anything interesting in the news this week, Phoebe? I saw that David Venables is on trial for uh, murdering his wife over 40 years ago now she disappeared in the 80s um, 82 i think 1982, 40 years and ago she wasn't wasn't seen again and then he lived on a farm he was a pig farmer he sold the farm and then in 2019 they found some of her skeletal remains in a cesspit in the on the property oh, wow. um and so he was arrested and charged with her murder and he he is currently on trial at the moment so an interesting one he says that it wasn't him it was fred west mm-hmm. so i'm not sure how likely that is i mean as far as we're aware he didn't dump anyone else in a cesspit so that doesn't really kind of fit his no mo i guess he did bury people in cellars though yeah, yeah underground well different... he used to dig holes and put people in didn't he yeah. under the ground but to... It, it was kind of fortunate for David Venables if Fred West had done it because he was able then to get on with his affair. That would have been very convenient if someone had murdered his wife to get her out of the way so he could have this careless affair with a nurse. So, yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, he's, he's 89 now, so I don't suppose he'll be in prison for very long if he's no, found guilty. If he's found guilty, yeah. He's uh, had uh, an, a nice 40 years by all accounts. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see outcome of that no keep an eye on that so phoebe i'm going to tell you the story of peter moore peter moore was born in 1940 in st helens which is in lancashire but as a child moved to kinwell bay which is on the north coast of wales now that's very close to rill okay so if you can imagine where that is his mother was actually in her late 40s when he was born, and I think he yeah. was a bit of a surprise. They weren't expecting to have <laughs> children when she was that late, and presumably his father was of a similar age. I don't know whether or not he had any siblings or whether he was a very late only child, which I think is probably what he was. Okay. His mother absolutely doted on Peter and spoiled him absolutely rotten. He could do no wrong. And he called his mother chummy rather than mummy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were really good friends. They were really, really close. They adored each other. So (laughs) (laughs) straight off the bat, is that a possible red flag? (laughs) I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a good relationship with your son slash mother. But um, (laughs) it just sounds that, yeah, already it was it was a little unusual how how intense their adoration for each other was. Yeah. Yeah. His father's name was Ernie Moore. And by contrast, he was very strict and controlling. 
He was described as a domineering, abusive, often drunk man. Whereas his mother spoiled him and let him get away with absolutely everything, his father was constantly putting boundaries in place and trying to control him, which led to a very confusing childhood for the for the young yeah, Peter. I say that's not a good base, is it, for no. a child to have that much kind of conf- conflicting parenting? Yeah, yeah, it was. There was no uh, synergy between the two by the sounds of things. Now, we only have Peter Moore's own description of his relationship with his father and, and a bit about his father's life. Yeah. But one account that he gave is of when he was a young boy, he discovered his father lying naked on the living room floor with another man. Oh, okay. Now, obviously, this was never spoken of. Obviously. But, yeah, I mean, you can just imagine, can't you? Cause, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, he, was, he was terrified of uh, upsetting his mother, so he probably wouldn't have said anything to her. And, of course, his father being strict and... Um, yeah. Yeah, some sometimes abusive, who obviously wouldn't want to be talking about it. And by all accounts, Peter was really quite young when, when this happened. Okay. But, yeah, maybe Ernie, the dad, had closeted feelings that he was unable to express freely back then in the 40s or 50s or yeah. whatever that was, probably still in the 40s. Maybe that's one reason why he was so controlling. It could be, yeah. Domineering, like trying to kind of... Yeah, he had his, his own demons that he was battling with. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Now, as he grew older, Peter realised that he himself was gay. Okay. But he didn't want to do anything about that, like come out, not that you would in the sort of the 50s or 60s, which yeah, I suppose it was okay. then, because of yeah how things were then. Wasn't it still illegal? Yeah, it was actually, yeah. Up to about 1966, 67, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he wouldn't want to have been kind of... No, but uh, nevertheless, he, he knew. The family ran a hardware shop in Kibble Bay in a large building called Darlington House, which was also their home. When he was old enough, Peter started working there. Now, the shop, being a hardware shop, supplied bottled gas to people of the village people of the town, and also to holidaymakers that would come and stay in caravans and campsites and things. You can imagine the sort of shop that it was. Yeah. People that visited the shop described Peter as always being a larger-than-life, very happy, polite young man, and he would deliver bottles of gas around the town with no extra charge. He was just sort of a a very amenable young chap. Fast forward a bit to 1979 when Peter is now about 39 and Ernie Moore, his father, dies. Peter carries on running the shop. Okay. Now, as well as working in the shop and running the hardware shop, Peter was fascinated by film and had ambitions to have his own cinema. Now, over time, over the next sort of 10 years or so, he managed to acquire five small provincial cinemas oh, wow. in various towns in North Wales, including Denby, Bangor and Holyhead. He, he liked being the projectionist and he showed films to the enjoyment of local townspeople. Okay. And he even appeared on TV in an article about bringing cinemas back to towns, sort of like in the 
North Wales news program. There's a that's there's, cool. There's, there's actually footage of him sort of talking about his interest and his hobby and in bringing these cinemas back to life. So by the time he'd opened these cinemas, it was like the nineties, nineteen nineties, and Peter was now in his fifties. Now living in North Wales, there was nowhere for gay men to go and meet freely. There were sort of like cruising areas where people went to meet in secret, sort of woods, (laughs) beaches being on the coast. And assaults on gay men were common, but no one ever reported these to the police because they knew they would be met with a positively hostile response from the police. So it was quite common for men to get beaten up, but they were never recorded, never reported. In September 1995, a man called Henry Roberts, who was 56, a retired railway worker, was found stabbed to death in the garden of his home on Anglesey. So people not familiar with UK geography, Anglesey is an island off the northwest coast of North Wales. It's barely separate. Okay. At first, it looked like he may have fallen, possibly off his roof, because it looked like he was doing some repairs on the house. It was a bit of a rundown sort of cottage, really. Right. Now, Henry Roberts was a, a loner with no immediate family, certainly no one living nearby. And he was also known to be gay. Okay. And when the pathologist examined his body, he was found to have had 13 stab wounds to his back and 14 wow. to his front. Oh my goodness. In, in, in a kind of pattern as well. They weren't just random. They were quite symmetrical. Wow. And his trousers were found to have been pulled down around his ankles okay. when he was found. His injuries included two quite nasty stabbings to his buttocks, which apparently had been applied post-mortem. Okay. And there were no immediate suspects for his murder. So that was in September 1995. In November 1995, so like two months later, another man was found stabbed to death in a caravan at the side of the road, also on Anglesey. Uh, He was a 49-year-old man called Keith Randalls, and he was a night watchman on a construction site which was on the side of the A5, which is the main road that runs across the island of Anglesey. It's also a road that runs from Bangor, which is just on the mainland side of the Menai Strait, to Holyhead, which is at the northwest tip of Anglesey. Okay. He was also found with his trousers pulled down. Okay. Then on December the 18th, 1995, so nearly a month later, Police in North Wales were alerted to reports of a missing man, Anthony Davis. Now, at around 6am, a policeman on patrol spotted the missing man's car, which was parked along the seawall along the beach at Pensarn Beach, just next door to Kinmore Bay. It's it's just, yeah, literally sort of just along the, the coast a bit. The beach was also known as a cruising area. The policeman found his body on the beach. His head was just about to be submerged by the incoming tide. His feet pointing up the beach. 
Now, because the fact that the tide was due to be high in about 30 or 40 minutes, he was given permission to move the body before the tide came in and washed him away. Otherwise, he would have left him there. The policeman describes that as he grabbed hold of the body by its legs and started to pull him up the beach, his clothes sort of rode up and he could see that his body was covered in stab marks. Now, on this occasion, his trousers were not pulled down. Okay. (laughs) Now, up to now, police hadn't really linked any of these crimes. Okay. Uh, They they treated them as individual things. They hadn't really realised there was any sort of gay connection. But because of this one was found on this particular beach, they started to link the three crimes together. Okay. And they thought the link might be something to do with the gay community. Okay. With whom, as we just mentioned, they didn't traditionally have a very good relationship. Yeah. Uh, however, the decision was made to reach out to that group of people in the local area for any information they may have. And a sort of an anonymous helpline was set up quite quickly. Yeah. Bearing in mind, this is just a few days before Christmas. Yeah, 1995. An anonymous man reported that he had been approached by an, a man dressed all in black leather on that beach just a little while earlier. He had agreed to go back with this man in black. And when they got into the house that he was taken to, this man who made the phone call reported that he had been violently set upon and seriously beaten up. Oh, that's uh, interesting. He managed to escape. But for all the reasons we just mentioned, he did not report it. Yeah. So he was reporting it now anonymously because they're asking for information. But that was the first that anyone knew about this particular assault. So the police took the details from this anonymous man where he'd been taken to and they managed to follow the directions because he was able to clearly say, well, we went up this road and turned left at these lights and right there. And and it led to Darlington House, the house Uh, where Peter Moore lived. The policeman who went into the property, knew Peter Moore. They'd both been lifelong residents of the town and and the policeman had occasionally been called to the hardware shop when there'd been like cases of shoplifting and things like that over the years. And So he he knew Peter Moore. He knew he was gay. And he also knew that he liked to dress in leather because he'd seen him out and about Uh... like that. So there was some surprise when it dawned on people that this otherwise respected businessman of the town, who's still running the family business, could be such a violent predator. Now, simultaneously, another police team who were picking up on calls that had been made to this helpline were following up on information about a white hired van that was seen in the area of the killings. Um, And they'd managed to trace this van because it had a distinctive logo of the Van Hire Company, which was based in Denby, another North Wales town, one of the towns that Peter Moore had a cinema in. And, yeah, one of the customers that fitted in with that time frame for a van of that type was Peter Moore. (laughs) He didn't do very well covering his tracks, did he? (laughs) No, circumstantial evidence was certainly stacking up by this stage. Yeah. uh, So this started in September 
and here we are in December, three bodies, and um, yeah, he, uh, you're right, of, he didn't. A lot of fingers <laughs> pointing towards him. Well, they are for the one for the for the body that was found on the beach. Yeah. If you've got one gay man stabbed to death in the area, and then you've got two other gay men stabbed to death in the area, you're yeah. going to start to think that there's a link there. Well, the man that was found stabbed in the caravan at the side of the road, being the night, night watchman, he was not gay. Oh, okay. But we'll come on to that. Now, police considered the evidence that they had that there were three murders and that they were all either very close to where Moore lived or on the route that he might have taken between his cinemas. Okay. And they felt that they had enough to arrest him. So on the 22nd of December, police went to Moore's home and he was just heading out in his van. But when he saw the police, he pulled over and stopped, let the police sort of approach him. The policeman opened the door, took the keys out of the ignition, got more out of the van, handcuffed him, arrested him, put him in the back of the police car and took him to the uh, police station for questioning. And throughout that, Moore showed no emotion whatsoever. So while he's being questioned, police searched the van and there was a black holdall on the passenger seat inside that holdall was a commando knife, a, okay. a double-bladed knife that was consistent with the sorts of injuries that these three men had been victim to. Again, not the place to keep your murder weapon in somewhere that's no. so you're going to be found so easily. Yeah, well, I think he felt that he was invincible. <laughs> no. Spoiler, he is not. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, he's not. Yeah, you're right. He's not. <laughs> now, at this stage, they really only had circumstantial evidence, but they charged Peter Moore on the 22nd of December with the murder of Anthony Davis, the man that was found on the beach on the 18th of December. Moore looked shocked that his control of his life had been taken away from him. And immediately after being charged for that murder... He was re-arrested and charged for the murder of Keith Randalls, who was the man that was found in the caravan. Okay. Moore denied both charges, but was held on remand. And while he was on remand, police searched his house and found that every room in the house was full of S&M paraphernalia, apart from his mother's bedroom. Now, his mother had died just two or three years earlier in the early okay. 1990s, so she must have been pretty old. Yeah. But he'd kept her bedroom just as she used to have it, as a kind of a shrine to her. But the okay. rest of the house... It was full of, like, chains. was full of, yeah, swings. a lot of leather. He had a lot of different sorts of hats. He was also a Nazi memorabilia collector. And there were also signs of violence having taken place in the house, uh, like the anonymous caller had claimed, uh, including blood on the walls and things like that. So um, it was quite a a, a shocking find for the police in this North Wales Mm. seaside town in 1995. 
And there are also items which could be traced to the victims, including a Nazi flag stolen from Henry Roberts, who it turns out was also a keen Nazi memorabilia collector. Wow. Who knew there was such a community of Nazi memorabilia collectors in North Wales? They also found Anthony Davis' jacket, which I think I heard somewhere or read somewhere, was still wet from from the beach. Wow, so okay. yeah, not, he got away. They were pretty sure they got the right man. Yeah, that's so, like pretty concrete evidence to me. Yeah, police investigators, psychologists, whoever who started studying the case believed that Peter Moore needed much more than just sort of like covert sex with men in cruising areas, which is probably how it started, and that he wanted control. And maybe this stems from his really weird childhood where his father was ultimately controlling, his mother was anything but. But he he needed to have control over other men to get any sort of satisfaction, and this included physical control as well as sort of psychological control. And that led to violence. Okay. Getting increasingly more severe. And it turns out that this had probably been going on for at least 20 years. Oh, my of, God. Of him attacking men, Jeez. knowing full well that it was incredibly unlikely that it would ever be reported. So he was oh getting God. away with it for all of this time. That's crazy. That's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But they think, wow. uh, but the only deaths that they can directly attribute to him okay. are these three. Do they think there's others? No, I don't think they do, but there's a little little twist to this story coming up in a moment. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, he wanted control over men, and he, and that control resulted in violence, in beating them up, like the anonymous caller. And ultimately, he found that he needed to actually kill to get his thrills. Okay. Forget the sex, just kill. That's what wow, okay. he needed to do. So after years of these assaults and now killings, he was now arrested and he was being controlled by the police and he really didn't like that. No, I bet he didn't. <laughs> and, and they weren't letting him out anytime soon. What is viewed as a sort of another act of him trying to take control, Moore summons the police and his legal representative to his cell or to the police station in the very early hours of the 24th of December. Okay. Where he confessed to the two murders that he'd been charged with and to that of Henry Roberts. So okay. Moore claimed that he had got money troubles. In fact, yeah, we know now that the bank were trying to foreclose on a number of loans that he got things okay. and and this had led to him undergoing a lot of stress and he claimed that the way of relieving his stress was to do what he liked doing best which was this violence and which led to these murders so basically he was killing these men viciously just to relieve his stress wow that's not the way to go about it is it no no, and he thought that because of the history of all of this, that a lot of these crimes would sort of go 
under mm. the radar, so to speak. Okay. He then began to tell the stories of these three men. In the case of Henry Roberts, Moore had often seen Henry Roberts walking along the side of the road, presumably back from the pub or something, while Moore was driving back from Hollyhead, from where he got one of his cinemas, to Kimmel Bay. Mm. And so he'd become familiar with seeing this man. And one night, Moore pretended to break down in Roberts's driveway. Okay. Roberts came out, the men started chatting, and uh, they ended up inside the house. And I don't think anything happened, as, as it were, other than they discovered that they both had a mutual interest in Nazi memorabilia. Maybe he got swastikas stickers well, all over the wall or something, I, I don't know. But more, yeah, more was able to identify the fact that Henry Roberts lived alone in this small, isolated, somewhat run-down cottage. Full of nuts and memorabilia. <laughs> yeah. And then just a few nights later, Moore returned, made some sort of noise outside the house, which drew Henry Roberts out. And as soon as Henry Roberts was outside the house, Peter Moore just stabbed him repeatedly, just oh for the God. thrill, just for the fun of that. Putting Jeez. his trousers in the struggle, he pulled his trousers down. He was probably already dead by then, and he just, from the other injuries, I mean, he had, was it 27 stab wounds altogether? Yes. With his large commando knife. knife. Just left him dead to be discovered the next morning. My God. Now, in the case of Keith Randall's, Moore was just driving back from Hollyhead, from his cinema, and he just saw that there was a light on in this caravan at the side of the road. So he parked, knocked on the door, and as soon as Randall's opened it, knife straight in. Jesus. Had a bit of a rough day. Just going to kill yep. somebody on my way home. Yep. No, yeah. No, no sort of um, other sort of confrontation or anything. It was just someone wow. there to be stabbed. Now, again, we've only got... Peter Moore's account of what happened, but he says that Keith Randalls begged to know, why are you doing this? Why are you attacking me while he was still being stabbed? And Moore simply replied, for fun. And he told police that there was a certain enjoyment in that killing. Oh, no. Then the last man to die, Anthony Davis, was 40, a married father of two, he was stabbed at the beach near the town of Abigeli on Pensarn Beach. And he was parked, as I mentioned earlier, next to the sea wall. And what he was doing there, his family don't know or don't want to okay. uh, consider yeah. that. But uh, it, it looks like he was tempted out of the car. And as soon as he was outside of the car or on the beach, he was stabbed to death. Wow. To be found the next morning just before being washed out to sea. So there was nothing sexual about the murders then? No, nothing at all. That's interesting. Purely violent against these vulnerable men who, yeah, by the nature of what they were doing, were were putting themselves in in danger, I suppose. Yeah. And because Peter Moore felt that these would never, well, I suppose you can never not take a murder seriously. No. But based on what had been going on with the assaults, where he'd got away with it for so long, Maybe he just felt that, yeah, no one would have noticed. Yeah. 
but you're not going to just ignore a man lying dead with 27 stab wounds in in the front front yard of his no, house. No, that's not, oh, we'll just see that one under the carpet sort of thing, is no. it? No, no. No. So there they are, the police and the legal team talking to Moore in uh, the wee small hours of the Christmas Eve morning where he dropped another bombshell. He confessed to the killing of a further victim. Oh, okay. A 28-year-old man called Edward Carthy, who went missing in October 1995. Right, okay. So... There we've got a September, and now we've got an October, yeah. a November, and a December. And a December, oh my goodness. Apparently, Moore met Edward Carthy at a gay bar in Liverpool. Okay. And Carthy actually befriended Moore during the evening, and as the evening ended, he asked for a lift home back to Birkenhead. And once Peter Moore got Carthy in his van... He didn't take him to Birkenhead. He just kept on driving and took him to the Clochanog Forest. Now, apologies if I have butchered that pronunciation. I don't know if you've got any Welsh listeners. The, the Clochanog Forest near Ruthin, North Wales, where he attacked him. In the same way as with the other victims, he was stabbed and just left roughly, crudely <sighs> hidden in the forest underneath some trees. Oh, my God. Although he was the second of Moore's victims, he was the last one to have been discovered. The others were all found the next day, basically. Yeah. <laughs> or within hours, whereas yeah. this one was uh, two or three, well, a couple of months before he was discovered. Edward Carthy lived with his sister and her family. She was quite a bit older than him. Their parents died when Edward was quite young. I think he was about 13 or something. So he went to live with his sister and was brought up by them. When he didn't come home from his night out in October, the sister reported him missing and okay. she was continuously contacting police to find out if there's any news. Nothing, nothing, nothing. This, this was sort of happening in the Birkenhead area. So again, maybe they were taking the view... Yeah. Gay man gone off. Meh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as as that was the attitude of the time. Mm-hmm. Moore provided police with a detailed map of where the body was hidden. And I believe that it was actually on Christmas Day 1995 when the police and the pathologist, it's the same man as it happens, that examined all of the bodies in this case. Okay. But I think that was just coincidence to start with until they started realising they were all yeah. linked. Um, and they actually found Edward's body covered by just some branches and leaves and old bits of wow. conifer trees lying on the forest floor. Okay. Apparently it was a, it was getting dusk because, yeah, evening's come in early around that time of year it was cold there was snow lying on the ground it was quite misty when they actually discovered his body in the forest Mm. when they found the body his head and one of his arms was missing oh no now his sister claimed that they never knew the truth about how 
Edward had died. And the newspapers at the time when reporting it had really, really picked up on the fact that the head and the arm were missing. Right. And when Peter Moore heard these newspaper stories, he actually built on that and was um, making suggestions about the fact that, yeah, I cut his head off and I was kicking it around like a football and and things like that, which really upset the family. Uh, yeah, as it were. <laughs> uh, to think that that is is what what happened to to Edward. But when Home Office pathologist Dr. Donald Waite, who was the one, as I say, that had, um, examined all of his bodies, examined the situation, he confirmed that yes, the head and the arm were missing, but they'd most likely been removed by large carnivores such as mm. foxes. And in actual fact, the head was found quite close by. Um, And it was that fact they found the skull that they're able to identify the body through dental records because they estimated it had been lying there for 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah. It wasn't really buried. It wasn't even like a shallow grave. It was just sort of covered in bits of dead tree. So it was very much decomposed. But the pathologist was able to determine that his death had been caused by a minimum of three stab wounds to the stomach. Wow, okay. That was still uh, evident. Wow. The trial of Peter Moore started in November 1996. Okay. Moore recanted his confession and he told the story whilst giving evidence in the trial that these crimes had been committed by his homosexual lover, who was referred to as Jason, who okay. is also the main character in a lot of the Friday the 13th films. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so he sort of spun this story that it was Jason that had killed these people, not him at all. Okay. The QC for the prosecution said that he had encountered many defendants in his quite long career. And Peter Moore was, however, the only one he thought of as being truly diabolical. And the jury saw right through all of these delusions and after a four week trial, found him guilty on all counts. As I mentioned earlier, Peter Moore, who ran the hardware shop and also had these little cinemas in the North Wales area is believed to have attacked more than 50 men over what the trial judge referred to as 20 years of terror. And as a result, he was sentenced to four life sentences. Wow. And the Home Secretary later recommended that he is never released and he is one of the UK's whole life term prisoners. Wow. So off he went to prison. He was originally in Wakefield Prison, where he befriended Harold Shipman, in fact. Ah. <laughs> but we know that that friendship kind of lasted too long because Harold no. Shipman hanged himself in January 2004. And always wanting to be in control, Moore launched several legal challenges from prison. In July 2000, Moore actually lost a fight 
in a claim for £160,000 worth in damages from North Wales Police. He accused police of failing to protect his home following his arrest in 1995. Okay. But a district judge at Leeds Court agreed that the case should be struck out on the grounds that Moore had no realistic chance of winning it at all. He did actually appear in court, heavily flanked by security, but he didn't have any legal representation, so he was never going to win. However, the year before, in 1999, he did actually win £13,000 compensation from a couple that he claimed had stolen contents from his home, including garden gnomes. (laughs) Was it a Nazi garden, though? (laughs) He claimed that neighbours Les Bradshaw and Pauline Pridurch abused an offer from him to become caretaker of his property by selling his belongings at a car boot sale. Oh, wow. It's kind of the the last of his (laughs) Well, yeah, but he's always trying to control. He's always trying to do something else. In June 2008, Moore was told by the High Court in the UK that he would spend the rest of his life in prison. In March 2011, Moore challenged this ruling in the European Court of Human Rights. With a view to having his sentence quashed, and try and get such whole-life order sentences outlawed throughout Europe. Wow, okay. On the 17th of January 2012, though, it was announced that his appeal had failed. That's a surprise. So, there we go. He is still in prison now. He's, what, 82? Yeah. I believe it was falsely reported that he had died, but he's not. He's very much... Still alive. Yeah, it's a well, tra- tragic story, really, yeah. on, on a lot of levels. But, uh, yeah, again, I, strange upbringing. Mm, I was fully expecting you to say that he'd committed suicide. Um, like that whole kind of trying to be in control of the situation. That Not yet. Yeah. I fully expecting you to say that. Maybe but, he's not quite yeah. that much in control. No, yeah. Um, well, yeah, he's clearly not really in control, is he? Yeah. He's... But when I was researching this story, it gave me echoes of the Stephen Port case, which is much more yeah. recent. That was in like 2014, 2015, where yeah. he was, in that case, drugging and young men. Yeah. And they were just being left just mm. over the road, basically, from where he lived. And the police were just not taking it seriously. Yeah. It's just a, you know, another gay death. And that's just really not that long ago, is it, for the police to still not no. be taking that seriously? It's less than 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, that is. Yeah. So maybe things haven't moved on much more. Mm. There you go. Most of this information either came from sort of like Wikipedia, Murderpedia, but there's also a BBC documentary where a lot of the background information came from, and that's called. Darklands, The Hunt okay. for Wales's Worst Serial Killer. It was actually only released in January this year. Oh, okay. um, and the, the sort of the premise of the story is the sister of Edward Carthy trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened. Okay. And, and taking that as the starting point. Right. The, the okay. documentary goes back through and, and it reveals a lot about peter moore's early life which okay i couldn't find much at all on the internet about that yeah, so okay. um 
so yeah it's it's a good watch if you if you want to find that mm. on on the iPlay it's available for a few more weeks i think before it then disappears so cool. I was lucky to find it <laughs> you were lucky to find it yeah thank you for that that was a really interesting story i'm glad i came across it and was able yeah. to tell you about it no thank you very much mm. Will you share some photos? I will. Yes, there's quite a lot. There's, I might even be able to share some video. The the clip oh, cool. when he was on the television back in the well, it's either late eighties or early nineties when he's uh, sort of uh, talking about the the cinema. Yeah, that cool. he's just reopened. But uh, there are photographs and yeah that I can put up. So yes, I'll be putting photographs on our social media. I'll put them on Instagram at Dad and Daughter Do Death, and I'll put them on Facebook dad and daughter do death it'd be really good to hear from you if you have any comments about that case if you want to correct my dreadful welsh pronunciation <laughs> um, and if, in fact you are a welsh person who listens to us we'd love to hear it <laughs> yes <laughs> maybe you have some uh, background on this story or yeah some other information would be interesting to hear about but yeah you can always drop us a line at dad and daughter do death at gmail.com and thank you very much to Judith, who wrote to us. Thank you for your kind comments. It, uh, it's really good to hear that people are listening to us and enjoying our podcasts. Yes, definitely. Made my weekend. Yeah, sorry if it was a bit sordid. Well, thank you very much for that. That was really interesting. And yeah, I will have something else for you next time. So join us then. We're once again, Dad. And daughter, do death. Ooh.